As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. In 1803, President Thomas Jefferson purchased the territory of Louisiana from the French after Spain had retroceded the colony to them less than a year before. Initially, the fledgling American nation had sought to purchase only New Orleans itself, as well as its nearby coastal land. But after France lost control of their colony and San Domingo to a revolution, Napoleon's desire to regain a foothold in North America had faded. So the 530 million acre territory was sold for a mere $15 million. President Jefferson then appointed William Claiborne to govern the territory, which in only one year had been under the rule of three entirely distinct governments. But most New Orleanians spoke only French and had never lived in a democracy. So a period of legal confusion and complications arose. Strong cultural differences between the incoming English-speaking Americans and the French Creoles of New Orleans resulted in serious tensions that marked the beginning of the end of Creole culture. It was amidst this struggle that one of the city's most elite Creole socialites Madame Delphine Lavori 
was found to have committed some of the most infamous atrocities that the city has ever seen. Atrocities whose legacies remain today in what many believe is not only the most haunted home in the city of New Orleans, but what is most certainly the site of one of the city's most unimaginable terrors. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. This episode of Southern Gothic is the third of a three-part series called The Birth of a City. Subscribe now on your favorite podcasting app to receive future episodes. The Americanization of New Orleans may have caused numerous cultural and legal issues, but it also came with prosperity. For the first 50 years following the Louisiana Purchase, New Orleans was the largest American city west of the Appalachian Mountains. And with an economy fueled by the South's prosperous plantation system, the city's population had grown more than 20-fold by the onset of the Civil War. The invention of the cotton gin in 1793 and granulated sugar in 1795 catalyzed even more growth in the output of southern cash crops, most of which was being funneled through the port of New Orleans. The Mississippi River quickly became a highway for steamboats exporting cotton and sugar to European markets. Of course, the increase in production led to an increased need for slaves to work the plantation's fields, resulting in the development of New Orleans as the largest slave market in the country. The earliest existence of slavery in the Louisiana Territory dates back to 1706, when European explorers raided Chittimacha settlements. Thousands were killed by the Frenchmen, but those who survived were taken as slaves. The enslavement of the native people, such as the Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Chittimacha, continued throughout French rule of the region. And it wasn't until the infamous governor, Alejandro Bloody O'Reilly, established Spanish rule of Louisiana on December 7, 1769, that the trade of Native American slaves was banned in the colony. Yet no similar laws were made in regard to African slaves. As early as 1717, the French began forcibly importing Africans through the port of New Orleans. During the first four years of the city's existence, 
over 2,000 enslaved people, transported on eight ships, were brought into the colony. However, the death toll was high on these transports. Scurvy and dysentery were widespread due to poor sanitation and inhumane conditions. But it's estimated that in the 50 years of French rule that followed, roughly 6,000 African slaves would reach Louisiana. The majority of these enslaved Africans originated from the West African areas of Senegal, the Bight of Benin, and the Congo region, as these were the primary locations of the French and Spanish colonies on the African continent. Of course, when the Spanish gained control of the Louisiana colony, not much changed. However, the cultural precedent of the French Code Noir continued in New Orleans society, a sharp contrast to the British colony's attitudes toward the treatment of slaves. Considered one of the most extensive official documents on race, slavery, and freedom ever drawn up in Europe, the Code Noir contains 60 articles that defined the conditions of slavery in the French colonial empire, restricted the activities of free people of color, and forbade the practice of any religion other than Catholicism. First enacted in 1685 by King Louis XIV, the code was officially applied to Louisiana in 1724. Notably, over a century later, when the horrors of Madame LaLaurie were discovered, the precedent set by the Code Noir was still alive and well in the city, despite the increasing Americanization of New Orleans. And while the Code did allow for cruel corporal punishment, it expressly forbade slave owners from torture and would punish those who outright killed their slaves. Both crimes that Madame Delphine LaLaurie and her husband would be found guilty of. Marie Delphine McCarty was born in New Orleans in 1775, the daughter of Bartholomew Louis de McCarty and his wife, Madame Marie-Jean Lerable. The McCarty family owned a plantation north of the city and a house in the French Quarter, as maintaining two residences in the colony was typical of the wealthy families of New Orleans Creole society. A Creole, in the historical sense, as a person of European ancestry who was born in the colony. And it was considered a great honor with a great reward to be considered the first Creole born in a new French colony. The definition of Creole would later grow to include all those born in the colony, including slaves of African descent. But Delphine was born with the honor of being one of the first in her family. As a child and young woman, she was described as happy, sociable, and gracious. Tales of her beauty followed her throughout her life. And as a well-bred Creole woman, 
she would have been taught to read and write. But most of her education would have been music, art, and etiquette. And she would also have been taught how to run a household for her future husband. But if young Marie Delphine McCarty had shown any early signs of her dark future, the well-to-do New Orleans family most certainly would have kept it hidden. And if there had been any type of abuse or early childhood trauma that affected her development, it was a secret never told. Unlike other young Creole girls who typically married at 16, Delphine waited until she was 24. Her first husband was the new intendant of Spanish-controlled Louisiana, Don Ramon Lopez Yanulo. Little is known about the substance of their marriage, but Anulo was considered a very controversial figure. He was overly thrifty and argued unsuccessfully to resume importation of slaves into New Orleans to boost cash flow. It's known, however, that his marriage, done without the permission of his Spanish superiors, resulted in the loss of his position in New Orleans and ultimately accompanied by his wife, his return to Spain. He died in 1803, and during Delphine's return trip to New Orleans, their daughter, Marie Francois, was born. Audio fiction fans, y'all need to go check out The Sprouting, an eldritch horror of an actual play podcast set in an apocalyptic future where eldritch plants have taken over, magical bargains twist the fabric of reality, and each survivor struggles to trust their own senses as they try to see their goals through to their ends. This podcast features an international cast, original scoring, and immersive sound design. In fact, y'all, here's a quick preview of The Sprouting, available now anywhere you get your podcasts. With your long-forgotten name, we call upon you. We call upon you. In the words of the unspeakable language, we call upon you. We call upon you. By the spilt blood of the wicked who walk upon this world, sprouting the words of false idols, we call upon you. We call upon you. On the land of the dead harvest, that which brings the earth itself into your service, Yamal, we call upon you. We call upon you. We call upon you. We call upon you. Yamal calls upon you. The Sprouting, a Call of Cthulhu actual play podcast by Blighthouse Studio. Find us on your podcatcher of choice. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Then, 
In 1808, at 32 years of age, Delphine married Jean Blanc. The year prior, President Thomas Jefferson signed into law the federal prohibition of the importation of slaves into the United States, the unintended consequence of which caused the value of current domestic slaves to increase. Delphine's new husband made a fortune flouting the prohibition by smuggling new slaves into the port. His name comes up more than 350 times in the slave schedules, both buying and selling. He also owned boats he used for privateering in order to further increase his wealth and influence. However, in 1818, Jean Blanc either died or disappeared. His fate unknown, only that he left his wife with four more children to raise. But he also left her a large amount of money, allowing Delphine to live in style. On June 12, 1825, Marie Delphine McCarty married for her third and final time to Dr. Leonard Louis Lalaurie, a Frenchman who had arrived in New Orleans only months prior. Leonard, who was at least 15 years younger than his new wife, had been a mediocre medical student, eventually graduating from dental school. However, there are no records of Monsieur Lalaurie establishing a practice in the city, and much of his life spent in New Orleans was overshadowed by his beautiful wife Delphine, one of the queens of Creole high society. Then, in 1832, the pair purchased the now infamous house at 1140 Rue Royale. The exquisite Creole-style home featured high walls surrounding an enclosed courtyard, typical of French Quarter residences, protecting privacy from neighbors. The galleries along the rear were used as slave quarters, and the rest of the house was a living area for the owners. The Lalauris decorated with elaborate furnishings, including expensive fine art and ornate furniture. Weekly parties were held at the Lalauri Mansion, where the most prominent citizens of New Orleans would attend, including Judge Capone, a very dear friend of the couple. It was after moving into this home that gossip and rumors began to spread within the city that Dr. and Madame Lalauri were mistreating their slaves. Rumors that neighbors claimed her slaves not only looked particularly gaunt and malnourished, but that Madame Lalaurie had even abused her own daughters for attempting to feed them. But since the Lalauries had freed another of their slaves that same year, a Louisiana-born African-American named DeVince, the rumors were treated as just that. Unfortunately, these rumors did not even scratch the surface of the truth.
Legend says that same year, a young slave girl, no older than the age of 12, had been tasked with brushing the madam's hair. But when the girl's brush accidentally caught a snag, pulling Lalori's hair too hard, Delphine became enraged. She jumped to her feet and chased the child from her bedroom out to the rear gallery of the balcony of the mansion, whipping her in punishment. The little girl's screams echoed through the home and attracted the attention of neighbors, some even threatening to summon the police. Unfortunately, help did not arrive, and the girl was soon seen plummeting from the gallery to her death over 30 feet below. Some witnesses claim she jumped of her own accord, attempting to escape the sadistic torture. Others believe that the force of the blows from Lalori's whip were so intense that the small child slipped through the balcony's railings, consequently falling to her death. It's believed that the body of the girl was then buried in a shallow grave in the mansion's courtyard, only feet away from where she died. But life at the Lolori mansion continued on as usual. Some legends claim that the police did eventually visit the home several days later, taking witnesses' statements and questioning Madame Lalori herself. But of course she denied any such event had occurred, and the short investigation of the crime failed to uncover any evidence of the mistreatment of the Lalori slaves, including the body of the young woman in question. Yet this story still remains a part of New Orleans folklore, and in spite of several accounts that these events resulted in the Lalori's having been fined by the courts and their slaves being removed from the household, there is no actual historical documentation regarding the veracity of the young slave girl's death or the punishment that may have followed. But whether this story is in fact true doesn't change the reality that the Lalori's were in fact guilty of horrific crimes. Crimes that would be well documented only two years later. On April 10th, 1834, a fire broke out at the Lalori residence. Decades after numerous fires had caused immense destruction in New Orleans, neighbors and firefighters now rushed to the mansion in hopes to not only save the home of their neighbor, but also to save the city itself. However, as the flames subdued, Madame LaLaurie, who had escaped her home unscathed, seemed to only be concerned with saving her art, furniture, China and other valuables. While dismissing questions concerning the whereabouts and safety of her slaves, telling the men who inquired, never mind them now, 
save the valuables. But angered by her disregard for human life, several men, prominent New Orleans figures, entered the mansion anyway, hoping to find anyone who may still be inside. But little did they know the horrors that they were about to uncover. The men discovered a locked door on the uppermost floor of the home, a door from which screams were emanating from, a door which once opened was hiding what is now considered to be one of the most gruesome scenes in the history of slavery in America. The following day, New Orleans' French-language paper, The Bee, described the site. Upon entering the apartments, the most appalling spectacle met their eyes. Seven slaves, more or less horribly mutilated, were seen suspended by the neck, with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to the other. These slaves were the property of the demon, in the shape of a woman. the uppermost floor of the Lalori mansion. Ten slaves were found in conditions that no human should ever endure. All were in a state of advanced starvation, sadistically imprisoned for what had clearly been a lengthy amount of time. Some of them had been locked in cages like animals, others chained to the walls some had gaping wounds infected with maggots. Others had incurred significant bone malformations resulting from broken limbs. The worst of these atrocities, which may have been embellished over time, but certainly were not far from the scope of documented reality, included men whose eyeballs had been plucked out. Others whose mouths had been stuffed with animal dung and lips sewn shut. One slave was even found to have his abdomen torn completely open, his intestines removed from his torso and wrapped around his chest. Yet another dangled in chains with an open head wound through which his brain could be seen as clear as day. But most horrifically of all, several of these slaves were found to have had their genitals surgically removed and then attached to another of the opposite sex. Only seven would survive, taken to the cabildo to be treated by a doctor. And though they were ensconced in the judicial building for their protection, it was estimated that as many as 4,000 city residents filed past the building in an effort to see the rescued slaves and witness for themselves the atrocities perpetrated by Madame Delphine Lalaurie and her husband. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that the Lalauries had sadistically tortured these human beings whose lives they clearly had no regard for. But because of their wealth, and social standing, the atrocities were only now being uncovered due to a fire 
which had intentionally been started by a 70-year-old slave who Madame LaLaurie had confined to the kitchen by a 25-foot chain. A woman who had endured starvation amidst plentiful food, whippings, wounds, murders, and whispers of a hidden torture room in the mansion where she was confined. Following the fire and subsequent rescue of the slaves, a mob of all classes and colors, Creoles, Americans, free people of color, and slaves, descended upon the home, which despite the flames had survived destruction. Within an hour, every article of furniture had been thrown into the streets and smashed. Nothing escaped the mob's ire, as the people of New Orleans ripped the house and its furnishings to pieces from the walls to the roof. Yet amidst the chaos, Delphine and Louis escaped. It's believed that they made it to Mobile, Alabama, where they put their affairs in order and established a power of attorney for their holdings in New Orleans, then boarded a ship headed for France. There, they lived out the rest of their lives openly evading punishment for the crimes they committed in New Orleans. And it's said that Madame LaLaurie died during her exile in France in 1842, and as per her request, her body was quietly shipped back to New Orleans, where she'd be entombed in the St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. But many historians wonder, did she really? According to some, there's a significant amount of compelling evidence that suggests Madame LaLaurie did not actually die in France in 1842. Although it is believed that she is buried in the famous St. Louis Cemetery No. 1, LaLaurie did not return to New Orleans in a casket, but instead, as a passenger intent on returning home to live in the city, where she was once chased out of. It's believed that at some point during her exile, LaLaurie had a home purchased in the Marigny neighborhood of New Orleans, with records showing her payment for renovations to the property in 1841. This home, located at the corner of Rue Victoire, now Decatur Street, and Rue Marigny, was a mere six blocks away from her earlier home of Royal Street, the lavish home at the center of what her son Pauline Blanc called the Catastrophe of 1834. Monsters are as old as humanity itself. Monsters embody our fears. Yet, they help us define the boundaries of what it means to be human. We know most monsters aren't real. Yet, we can use monsters to learn about reality. Psychology, biology, folklore, literature, critical thinking. 
We're on a journey to learn about the world through the lens of monsters. And we hope you'll come along with us. Subscribe at monstertalk.org. So this is History Uncovered, and I'm Kalina. And I'm Austin. We are the co-hosts of the show. History Uncovered is a podcast presented by All That's Interesting, where we both are writers. We cover all sorts of topics, true crime, unsolved mysteries, history, folklore, the paranormal, you name it. We've been doing this now for more than 100 episodes, covering a wide range of topics, and probably something that's bound to be interesting for everyone out there. Absolutely. And in addition to our normal episodes, we also do a history happy hour about the recent news in the world of history and archaeology, which we cover daily on the site, as well as important historical anniversaries. We also have done some special series. We've done one on the Titanic, doing one on Jack the Ripper, Mm -hmm. done one about some famous UFO sightings. So if all of that sounds like something that might be interesting to you and you like having a good time, learning new things and maybe maybe laughing or just (laughs) groaning at some bad puns, check out History Uncovered everywhere you get your podcasts. Lori's life was like upon her return to New Orleans is unknown, but it was likely a quiet one, surrounded by family, as most of her children lived in homes adjacent to her own. The date of Marie Delphine LaLaurie's death is unknown, but it is believed to be sometime between 1855 and 1858. Also unknown, is the exact location of her final resting place, as there is no burial record for LaLaurie. However, it is believed that she may have been buried in tomb number 323, located in the infamous St. Louis Cemetery number one. This tomb was allotted to the extended relatives of the Forstall family, the family in which Delphine's first daughter married into. Further complicating the mystery is the record of a burial for Delphine Lopez in a separate Forstall family crypt. Though some believe this to be LaLaurie's daughter, others believe that Marie Delphine LaLaurie was buried with the name of her first husband as a way to allow her to rest in peace and protect her body from exhumation or desecration due to her crimes. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that suggests that Madame Delphine LaLaurie is anything but guilty of the crimes that occurred in her home on Royal Street in New Orleans. However, the mysterious lack of her husband's presence in these tales may be insightful to the truth. The practice of doctors using slaves as test subjects for potions and remedies was not uncommon were considered unethical at the time, and some historians believe it plausible that it was the doctor himself who had been the one sadistically using these men and women for sinister medical experiments beyond the scope of even 19th century ethics. Furthermore, Delphine 
was a high society socialite and she was said to like beautiful things. The suggestion seemed strange that she would dirty her own hands in such a significant way as she is often portrayed in lore. But it may be because of this elite Creole standing that the entirety of the crimes have been linked to Delphine, who always overshadowed her younger, less influential husband, overshadowed enough so that history frequently forgets he was ever a part of the horrific events that occurred in April of 1834. Yet even if this theory were completely accurate and Delphine was not the one actively torturing men and women, she is still very much guilty for allowing the atrocities to continue on in her home. Even after the Lori's exile from New Orleans, their heinous acts left deep social wounds on the city, fueling its anti-slavery movement and exposing the corruption that allowed money and social status to raise the city's elites to be above the law. But through this all, the house remained. Almost immediately after the fire, stories of strange ghostly events began to circulate. People reported hearing crimes and screams from the vacant structure, as well as the apparitions of slaves on the balconies and in the windows. Some even reported seeing the ill-fated slave girl running in fear before falling to death in the courtyard below. For several years after the fire, the mansion remained an abandoned, half-destroyed mess. When the property was finally purchased, it was renovated to the configuration in which it is now currently standing. But the man who purchased the mansion only stayed three months before abandoning it in fear. A string of similar incidents followed. It's well documented that for many Anglo-Americans who migrated south to New Orleans after the Louisiana Purchase, the culture and society of this truly foreign city shocked them. For in New Orleans, the culture was fundamentally different to that of the United States. New Orleans was still a French-speaking, predominantly Roman Catholic city with a social system that ranged from wealthy white plantation owners to a large slave society, which still maintained many of their African traditions. More shockingly even, was the large, well-educated and prosperous population of free people of color, who enjoyed many of the same rights granted to white citizens. Naturally, those shocked Anglo-Americans encouraged the government to make New Orleans more respectable, more American. The first governor of the Louisiana Territory, W.C.C. Claiborne, 
was sent to do just that. But the Creoles of Louisiana had no desire to be American. In fact, many believed the arriving Americans were uncouth. So it continued on largely as it was, still at its core a French city, retaining its language and growing in size with an influx of refugees, both white and free people of color, from the Haitian Revolution of 1804. Refugees who were largely French-speaking and of a society more closely related to New Orleans than America was. It wasn't until the city's occupation by Union forces during the Civil War that New Orleans became truly Americanized. The general in charge, Benjamin the Beast Butler, abolished French language instruction in schools in 1864. And by 1868, additional English-only policies were put in place. With the increase of English-speaking Americans in business and government, and the policies put in place by Butler, it was only a matter of time for French to largely fall out of favor. And without their language, combined with the destruction wrought by the Civil War to their plantations and livelihoods, French Creole society fell. Despite the stories told about Madame Delphine Lalaurie and her legend as a monstrous villain of New Orleans's past, the Creole queen could certainly be said to have had the last laugh, as her descendants can still be found in New Orleans today, and her twisted legacy remains strong almost two centuries later. My name is Brandon Schecksnyder, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. special episode of Southern Gothic contains special theme music written and performed by Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter Adam Wright and a guest cameo by Justin Drown of Obscura, a true crime podcast. All other content is written and produced by Brandon and Brianne Schecksneider. To keep up with future episodes, subscribe today on Apple's podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Lucky Little Shacks. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your favorite music. Dust. Like dust in the light. An 11-song masterpiece by Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter Adam Wright. And we Featuring performances by Leanne Womack, Aubrey Sellers, Shannon Wright. Dust.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 